This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today, how a pandemic helped jumpstart a free meal program in Fayetteville. Basically, Donald Trump was paying me to run a socialist mutual aid kitchen and feed homeless people. Uh, he didn't know it, but it, it helped. <laughs> we hear from some of the leaders behind May Day NWA, plus raising awareness about epilepsy in Arkansas. It's really the, uh, the fifth member of our family. Mm. It impacts every decision we make, where we eat, where we, where we go on vacation, how we travel. And Bela Fleck discusses collaboration. That's kind of an enlightened musical experience is, is like, like where the musicians are constantly pointing out how things to each other in their playing um, as they go along that, that create new possibilities for the other players. First, the news from NPR. The Botanical Garden of the Ozarks will host its annual Halloween Costume Parade October 25th from 9 to 11 a.m. This is meant to be a safe option for preschoolers and their families to get into the Halloween spirit. Admission is free for garden members and children three and under. In the case of rain, the event will be rescheduled for October 26th. Tickets at bgozarks.org. The Momentary in downtown Bentonville invites guests to discover art, food, and music. Immersive performances and exhibitions, live concerts, food and drinks. There's always something new at Northwest Arkansas's Creative Hub. More at themomentary.org. This is a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. It's October 25th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF. Arkansas is ranked seventh in the U.S. with citizens that are most likely to go hungry. One in six people face hunger in Arkansas, with one in five of those being children. The nonprofit organization Mayday NWA is coming together to help feed and create community for those who face hunger in Fayetteville. Ozarks at Large's Victoria Hernandez spoke with those involved in the organization about their work feeding those in need. Every Monday night at Walker Park from 6 to 8 p.m., volunteers and organizers are out serving the community. Through May Day Northwest Arkansas, Fayetteville's struggling working class can obtain a free meal and community connections. Since May of 2020, Alex Tripodi says he's been cooking for the community because everyone deserves food. Tripodi started the organization as a result of personal and political turmoil and trauma. When the pandemic hit, I was furloughed. I was uh, in the fine dining industry. And... I didn't know what to do with myself, so I started cooking. I realized that with a little bit of seed money, I could leverage some connections I had in the restaurant industry to get free or close to free food and found a church to cook out of, uh, Trinity United Methodist Church. I had never met the pastor there uh, before the day I asked him if I could cook out of his church and five to 10 minutes into talking to me, he gave me a key and said, we're not having service uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, God bless. The organization started as Mayday Community Kitchen. The original mission was to just drop off food on the doorsteps of people in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now they're doing more than just providing a free meal. Back when we were cooking out of Trinity United Methodist, we were ambitious. A lot of us were getting stimulus checks. Um, Basically, Donald Trump was paying me to run a socialist mutual aid kitchen and feed homeless people. Now, he didn't know it, but it, it helped. Um, and uh, uh, we, were, we were in a church. We were delivering these meals 
to people's doorstep. There was very little community interaction. And we realized that we were doing a great job of feeding a lot of people. We were doing a very poor job of building those connections and addressing those vectors of power and privilege. After the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Mayday Northwest Arkansas reformed. Uh, that we could do something a little more low to the ground, a little more flexible, where we could pull up and address another community need if another Roe v. Wade overturn happened, for example, and where we could really focus on maybe be smaller in scale in terms of the, the, the amb ambitions when it came to getting the food out, but more deliberate about forming those community connections, about meeting the individuals we were feeding, about learning about their needs and potentially addressing those needs or bringing in people to address those needs. Mayday Northwest Arkansas collaborates with other programs, such as those that provide clothing donations. When I went out to see one of their Monday meals, a representative from Legal Aid was helping people to sign up for Medicaid. <laughs> Rachel Anderson started working with Mayday Northwest Arkansas in September 2020 as a volunteer and spoke of the need to add more community aspects to their work. Um, a lot of food programs are designed to like give out meals and kind of keep this like barrier between the people who are serving meals and the people who are receiving meals. In contrast to that, like what we try to do is create a sense of community. So you'll see, we'll sit down and eat with people out here. Like this is our dinner too. We're coming out, we're sharing a meal, trying to build community, try to build a point of stability for people and like be consistent to kind of try and help lift people up. A typical day with this new model starts early on Monday afternoons. One of our co-organizers, Chai, he like started the day by going to St. James Food Pantry. Um, it's run by Monique Jones. They help us out by giving us a lot of food resources. So a lot of the food we cook comes directly from St. James Food Pantry. Um, so he started the day by going there and picking up the ingredients we needed for the meal. And then we all met at the kitchen we cook out of. And uh, that was about 1.30, 2 o'clock this afternoon. Started just getting all of our ingredients prepped and get the cooking process going. We usually try to head out of our kitchen about 6 o'clock so we can be here by 6.30, set up, ready to, like, get everybody food. Um, but, yeah, so it's a lot of just, like, gathering ingredients and cooking them. Machais Talao is a sous chef at Atlas Fayetteville and a co-worker of Anderson's. Starting as a volunteer, he utilized his connections in the industry. I was like, hey, let me talk to Elliot and let's see if we can operate inside of Atlas's kitchen. Atlas, the restaurant, is a fine dining restaurant serving food inspired by cuisine from around the world. Because it's closed on Mondays, Mayday Northwest Arkansas is able to utilize their empty kitchen to feed those struggling to buy food. Talal works in multiple capacities now to get food on the table for the folks in need. So, um, yeah, basically my role is like I'm a co-organizer um, at this point, and uh, I basically brainstorm um, all the food, all the menu ideas. Uh, they, they rely on me to push on all the food and uh, picking up the food and distributing the food is, is a responsibility of mine. Uh, basically, we're a team, and any responsibilities, um, responsibilities are on all of us. The three view their work with Mayday Northwest Arkansas as more than just volunteering. Their work connects on a deeper level. 
Rachel Anderson again. This was absolutely like the type of resource that I would have needed when I was, you know, growing up. Like I, my family didn't have a lot of money during like certain periods of our time. And like, yeah, there were definitely times where the only meals I was eating were like the free breakfast and lunch I got at school. Um, you know, hunger is a cause that is just like, I have experienced that and I know how stressful and how isolating and just like how painful that really is. And so like trying to address that need within the community that I live in feels really important to me and kind of like healing work for myself. Honestly, this isn't fulfilling to me. Machias Talau. Um, I don't think it's that fulfilling for Rachel or Alex. Basically, it's just a responsibility. It's like a personal responsibility and it's a personal personal philosophy of like, are you an able body? Are you, do you have this connection? Do you have this amount of privilege? Um, and if you do, like, how can you share it? And that's just my mentality and that's just the way I was raised. Um, and uh, basically they're like-minded people, so we clicked immediately. So like, honestly, we look at ourselves as like food distributors. You know, there's not a lack of food at all, especially being a chef for like four years. Like there's not a lack of food at all. A lot of food gets wasted. A lot of food gets thrown away. A lot of food's just sitting, pallets of food are sitting um, just collecting dust um, and people really don't know what to do with it and that's kind of like what we do is like oh well we do well we'll just take it you know and then we'll just cook it and then we'll feed 50 people you know so you know that's kind of my philosophy and my okay. honestly my philosophy and like why I do this it's just a responsibility and like why not you know for Ozarks at large I'm Victoria Hernandez Victoria Hernandez is our fall intern here at Ozarks at Large and produces her stories in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. You can find all of the individual stories we report on our show by checking out our website, ozarksatlarge.com. At our website, you'll also find a link to subscribe to our free newsletter. It's a rundown of all of our stories directly to your email inbox every weekday morning. There's also ways to subscribe to the Ozarks at Large podcast where you can listen on your own schedule in your podcast app of choice. All of that at OzarksAtLarge.com. Ahead on today's Ozarks, Bela Flack gets us ready for a musical collaboration he'll be part of next month in Fayetteville. That's kind of an enlightened musical experience is, is like, like where the musicians are constantly pointing out, out things to each other in their playing um, as they go along that they create new possibilities for the other players. Bela Flack later on today's show. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Kyle Kellams. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has named Delaney Thomas as the new director of tourism at the Arkansas Department of Parks, Heritage, and Tourism. Thomas previously worked for Arkansas ad agency CJRW as an account manager for Arkansas Tourism in Oakland for more than eight years. Our partner at Talk Business and Politics reports that Thomas managed campaigns, media strategies, public relations, and social media content strategies during her time working with CJRW. She will now facilitate an economic sector that grew to be a $9.2 billion industry in her new role. An impact study commissioned by the department found that tourism in Arkansas grew 15.4% in 2022, 
with more than 48 million people visiting the state. Scores on the ACT college preparatory exam reached a national 30-year low in the 2022-23 academic year. Arkansas high school student scores dropped from 18.8 to 18.6, according to the College Board, the nonprofit that administers the test. The national average was 19.5 out of a possible 36 points. Suzanne McRae is dean of admissions at the University of Arkansas. She says the downward trend is likely due to universities placing less emphasis on the test for admissions. That's very likely had a national impact on how many times a student is taking the test. And if you're relying, if we're relying more heavily on students taking it once, then the scores are going to be lower. The University of Arkansas went test optional in 2020, and McRae says the change is now permanent for applicants with a 3.2 GPA or higher. And we've done studies. COVID forced us to be test optional. And what that allowed was that we had numbers to better understand what the test meant in terms of retention and graduation. And we found that students really retained well and had high success rates if their GPAs were higher. Uh, And that seemed to matter more at our institution. Despite the move away from ACT in admissions, McRae says high school students should not discount the test altogether. Scholarships often require scores. So we do try to remind students in the state, do take the test, do take it more than once if you can, because there are scholarships, especially endowed scholarships that often uh, the donor has required an ACT score. Um, There are scholarships that that are going to require that, and so they could be cutting themselves out of some of that if they don't take the the test more than once. Other schools in Arkansas that have a test-optional admissions process include John Brown University in Salem Springs, as well as Hendricks College and the University of Central Arkansas, both in Conway. A nonprofit agency providing bridge housing for unsheltered people in Fayetteville is marking two years of operation. New Beginnings Northwest Arkansas celebrated Sunday with a public cookout tours of the 20 living cabins on the campus, and live music. Solomon Birchfield, the program director, says the bridge housing can be a vital resource for people who have been chronically without shelter since there are many barriers to getting back into housing. Not just that my income is really low. On disability, I may make $840 a month. So I need really affordable housing. I also probably have no tenant history. I've been in the woods for 15 years, and like, so how do I prove I'll be a good tenant? A lot of our folks here are still working on criminal and credit background issues as well. So affordable housing, accessible housing, uh, it really feels like a miracle. The program promotes physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, as well as housing-focused support. Birchfield says the creation of the New Beginnings Campus required cooperation from hundreds of individuals and organizations. A miracle of people coming together, um, of financially supporting the project, of uh, volunteers that come in and feed meals every evening. Like, it's that kind of miracle. We like to say it takes a community to build, sorry, it takes a village to build a community. And so everyone's just come around folks here, and that's the miracle. Birchfield says the work extends just beyond the campus of 20 cabins, kitchen, and caseworkers' offices and laundry facilities. He says the organization works to promote the expansion of supportive housing options and promote housing justice. More information can be found at the New Beginnings Northwest Arkansas Facebook page.
This is Ozarks at Large. In about 15 minutes, Bay LaFleck discusses the new album, As We Speak, and his upcoming performance at Walton Arts Center. That's ahead. At least 3.4 million Americans live with epilepsy, the fourth most common neurological disorder in the world. Work to better understand, diagnose, and treat epilepsy is advancing as awareness about epilepsy grows. Raising awareness is one of the goals of Saturday's Walk to End Epilepsy, Northwest Arkansas, taking place at Agri Park in Fayetteville. Yesterday, Jamie West Shipley and David Shipley, two organizers of the 2023 walk and two members of the Epilepsy Foundation of Arkansas, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. They're also parents of a son, Reese, who was diagnosed with epilepsy about nine years ago when he was in pre-K. Jamie and David say there were fewer resources for families living with epilepsy in Arkansas then than there are now, but there is still work to be done. The challenge now is really getting the word out to people that there are resources, and, and by telling, hopefully by telling our story, people might relate to their own lives and that, hey, that is epilepsy. There is hope. Let me find out some things about it. That's what the walk is about this Saturday, is, is providing information to people who have an interest in it, who may have it, who might have a family member that has it or a friend that has epilepsy of some sort, and um, they can help find a, a, a path for a better life for themselves. I imagine since when Reese was first diagnosed that there weren't many uh, resources, you've run into other families who have gone through the same experiences. Yeah. So in the beginning, that's really how we learned anything was just by word of mouth. Um, It wasn't something that we were really aware of in terms of people that we knew. But once we started talking about Reese having epilepsy, we made a connection, you know, through our son's swim school. Or there was another family that someone knew that, you know, you know that kind of person-to-person kind of connection. That's how we eventually found the physician that we use in um, Memphis. Um, that's how we found out about different medications and you know, different resources that were available to us. But in the beginning, it was just making that person-to-person connection. And even up until like a year and a half ago, we were still doing that for other people. So there was a family in Fort Smith that knew somebody that we knew that knew our son was on a ketogenic diet, you know, and that person called us. Or there was somebody that we knew that knew another family that knew that we were going to Memphis to La Bonner. And it was just those kind of connections. Now that we have an Epilepsy Foundation chapter, we have uh, support groups, we have Facebook page, et cetera, it's easier to make those connections than just sort of that word of mouth. But I'm sure there are still families that are, are looking for more help and more of those connections. Absolutely. Um, the support groups that we're doing now, I think, are really important. But, you know, raising awareness is one thing. And then the money that we raise through the walk is also used to help pay for additional resources for the state of Arkansas um, and across the country. And it's also used for research for cures and treatments. Is part of the awareness also for those of us who might not have someone in our family with epilepsy being aware and knowing what to do? Sure, sure. Um, And that's a really fantastic point. So November is Epilepsy Awareness Month. So for several years, I have shared information about epilepsy on my Facebook page. One of the things that I shared was what to do um, if someone has a seizure. We could be anywhere. You could be across the street of the library or in a restaurant or whatever. Um, 
And that's come in very handy for people that I've shared that with. A friend of ours was actually in line at the DMV and Mm -hmm. someone in front of her had a seizure and she knew what to do and would not have otherwise. But the three most important things are stay safe inside. So stay with the person who's having a seizure. If you can start a timer, that's great. Safe. um, Keep them as safe as possible. And that means removing things around them that they could hurt themselves on. If you can put something soft under the person's head, um, you know, for another type of seizure, that might mean not letting the person walk into the street because some people can actually be ambulatory, uh, but be totally unaware of where they are. Our son does that. So keeping them safe. And then the third thing is side. So if someone is unconscious or unable to respond and you can get them to the ground, you can turn them on their side, that helps prevent aspiration. Um, One thing that we do want to make clear, and this is a very common myth for epilepsy, is don't put something in someone's mouth, right? It's dangerous for the person with epilepsy. It's dangerous for the person trying to do it. And it's not at all helpful. You cannot swallow your tongue while having a seizure. You said start a timer. And that's just so you can tell somebody how long... Yeah. Person. Okay. So if EMS has to be called, that's one of the gotcha. things they'll want to know. Um, but that's a great point, too. You don't have to call EMS for every time someone has a seizure. Uh, in fact, we've never called EMS for our son. Now, we've taken him to the hospital once on our own. But, you know, we, we give him medication after a certain time period. So if he's been a seizure for longer than five minutes, uh, we have rescue meds. Um, But it really does depend on the person, the number of seizures they're having, the kind of seizures they have, whether or not they usually stop on their own, if they're Mm -hmm. clusters, a number of things. Yeah, I still can't imagine being a parent, though, and and having a a child or any loved one. Yeah, Yeah. it's really the uh, the fifth member of our family. Mm. It impacts every decision we make, where we eat, where we we go on vacation, how we travel, uh, what we can do, you know, with our, our our son, uh, and impacts his little brother as well. You know, it, our decisions for Reese impact Braden. Mm. That's just yeah. Reese is thirteen. He's at the age where you know most parents are comfortable leaving their kid home alone for you know an hour or longer. We can't ever do that. Um, in terms of Braden, he's nine, but he is often responsible for watching out for his brother. He knows when to tell us, he knows what the seizures look like, when to tell us, he knows how to swipe his VNS. Um, he's very conscious of that, watching him in a parking lot, watching him on the sidewalk. Um, you know, it's things that you don't think a nine-year-old should have to be aware of, but he's really phenomenally aware and smart about it and very conscientious about it. VNS. Vagus nerve stimulator. It's an okay. implanted device. Uh, it's in the left chest, and then there are wires that go up into the neck. Um, it can be set on a timer for individualized treatment. Our son's goes off, I think, approximately every 35 seconds on its own. But in the event of a seizure, he wears a magnet on his wrist, and you can swipe it to make mm-hmm. it go off. You know, Sends okay. a signal, and hopefully it'll stop yeah. the seizure. And, and one of the things we were involved with this past year, uh, in February, uh, our son's testified in the House since uh, in, uh, for the House and Senate uh, committees on, on education, right? Yeah. Yeah, for a, a Seizure Safe School Act. And one of the big things about epilepsy is that a lot of, for every kid that's, or every person that's diagnosed, there are probably two or three in this state that are not. And what the Seizure Safe School Act was able, what it does is require schools to 
train people that the Epilepsy Foundation will help train the school people to recognize seizures, recognize seizure types, and how to treat those different types. And hopefully by that, we'll create a greater awareness of, of, of seizures and people can find the, the solution they need rather than just kind of let it go. Because the, the community itself is really underserved. There's not enough medical people in the state. Um, well, yeah, Reese's doctor is in Memphis. Right. I yeah, mean, that's a five-hour. As I drive, that's a five-hour drive. Yeah, it was a lot closer when we lived in Little Rock, but mm-hmm. um, it's a great facility. They um, have a dedicated EMU inpatient unit, um, so really great care there. Good neurosurgeon, etc. We were very blessed to find that after you know having treatment here in the state as well. So epilepsy has been the fifth member of your family for nine and a half years yep. or so. What would you tell? other families who maybe are in the first year of discovery? Reach out. Reach out to come to the event. Talk to other families. Figure out what your story is. Uh, Figure out what a kind of epilepsy seizure type you have. What's the best way to treat it? Where's the best place to go? Um, By sharing stories, you'll find your solution and, and support. I think it's super important to be aggressive. Um, That's one of the things that we didn't appreciate in the beginning. We probably were not aggressive enough in asking for rhesus therapy to be changed. Um, You know, you go three months between appointments. If it's not working, you think you just tell them when you come back three months later. But it's really important that you get control of seizures as quickly as you can. If something is not working after a couple of weeks, depending on what that medication is, you need to be calling the doctor and saying, this is not working. It's time to either increase the dose, change the medication, et cetera, because the faster you are able to get control of them, the more likely you are to get control of them. The longer they go uncontrolled, the least, the less likely any subsequent medication is um, going to be able to work. And unfortunately, we didn't know that. And I think a lot of parents don't know that. Uh, And it's not something they actively tell you either. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so that I think that part's very, very, very important. And I think it's also really important to talk to um, if you're if it's a child, talk to all the folks at school, like the Seizure Safe School Act, let them know what your child's seizure types are, what they look like, when treatment needs to be given versus not given. Um, But just be very vocal about it. If you want to learn more about training, Epilepsy Foundation does training for free. You can go to the Greater Epilepsy Foundation page. Um, You can get trained in seizure recognition, seizure safety, seizure first aid. There are great resources there. If you're unable to come to the walk, but you want to share stuff with your child's school, um, there are posters there, fact sheets. Um, we have a uh, – there's a, a form that you can fill out with all your child's medic- – or your own medication. I always say child because that's our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can put their medications, all of those things, share that with whomever you need to share it with, a daycare or a school or your employer or, you know, or whomever, so that they have everything they need in one spot um, in the event that you or your child has a seizure. But I think that page has just a ton of really, really good resources. You know, it's about sharing stories. And every, everybody's path is going to be different with epilepsy. It's not, a, it's not something that it's A, B, C, or D. It could be a combination of, of all those. So uh, the more you learn, the better you are, 
capable of dealing with what what's going on. And uh, our, our goal with our son is that we want him to live on his own, you know, function on his own. And a lot of times I think particularly kids and maybe more in rural areas or poor areas, uh, those families don't have the time or money to to go find those solutions. And so those people just exist. Yeah. And, and I think – there's this perception that epilepsy is extremely rare or uncommon. It's actually the fourth most common uh, brain disorder, in, you know, in the United States. Uh, one in ten people will have a seizure of some sort in their lifetime, and it's important to know that just because you have a seizure doesn't mean you have epilepsy. So mm-hmm. seizures can be caused by, you know, any number of, of reasons. But actually, one in twenty-six people will develop epilepsy in their lifetime. One in 26. Yeah. So if you, you know, if you think about a classroom size, again, right. I'm going back to our experience with, with kids. If you've got a classroom where 26, 28, you know, one of those 26 at some point in their lifetime is going to develop mm. epilepsy. Thank you both for coming in. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate it. Jamie West Shipley and David Shipley are members of the Epilepsy Foundation of Arkansas. They were at the Carver Center for Public Radio yesterday. The 2023 Walk to End Epilepsy Northwest Arkansas takes place Saturday at Agri Park in Fayetteville. Registration begins at 9. The walk will begin shortly after 10. There will also be tables with much more information about epilepsy at the park. You can learn more about the walk and about epilepsy at epilepsy.com forward slash Arkansas. The Facebook page for the Arkansas Epilepsy Foundation and a Facebook page Jamie and David have created called Epilepsy and Beyond. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. Cora Pinkley Call, born in 1892 in rural Carroll County, became a noted author of both fiction and nonfiction works. Diagnosed at age 12 with a fatal disease, she dropped out of school and educated herself through reading and walking through the woods and fields near her home, which proved therapeutic. She began writing poetry, short stories for children and adults, and magazine and newspaper stories, as well as books, beginning with Pioneer Tales of Eureka Springs in Carroll County in 1930. She wrote eight other books, including a cookbook, My Ozark Cupboard. Her work focused on family values, religion, patriotism, self-reliance, the beauty of nature, and temperance, the latter inspired perhaps by her having played piano at meetings in Carrie Nation's house. In 1935, she founded the Ozark Writers Artists Guild to give creative people from the region an avenue to exchange ideas. Call died in 1966, and the cabin in which she wrote now stands at the Eureka Springs Historical Museum. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. Happy Wednesday. Early next month, we get a musical treat. Bela Fleck and three world-renowned musicians will be on stage at Walton Arts Center. Fleck, the master of the banjo, will be joined by double bassist Edgar Meyer. Zakir Hussain, one of the great tabla performers in the world, and Indian flutist Rakesh Chorasia. They'll all present music from the collaboration they recorded together called As We Speak. I reached Bela Fleck yesterday by phone, and I told him that the CD, released earlier this year, delivers surprises on almost every track. I'm surprised by those guys every day and everything that they do. And, and um, when, they, when, they, when we record together I'm, um, and I get to hear back what everybody's done, it's always um, really interesting because when, when you're actually performing the music with people, you, you're not able to listen in the, in the same way that you can when you're listening back to a recording, which is why recording is actually good for musicians to do, even though selling CDs is getting harder and harder. Um, the, the process of recording... Um, brings a lot more awareness of, of what the other people around you are doing. 
title, as we speak, suggests that there is a conversation going on between musicians and maybe even musicians and those of us listening. Was that intentional? Absolutely. You know, we talk a lot about conversation in instrumental music because we don't have words, you know, um, in instrumental music. And and words speak to people um, more instantly, especially people that aren't as familiar with instrumental music. But if they start to understand that it's a conversation and a, a sort of a co-spoken conversation where you're kind of you're talking over each other, of course, a bit, but it all works together, um, it, it's, it's easier for, for people to understand what we're doing. And I think the best music, the best instrumental music to me is conversational. And I'm always striving for that call and response, that reaction from the musicians as they're, as they're playing. Uh, when I'm looking for a performance that I think is good, sort of as a producer or, or a, you know, a creator, um, I want I want to hear not only the person say something, I want to hear the other person say, uh-huh. <laughs> and I want the other person to respond differently because of what the person just said. So it's not like... Um, I mean, if you want to just build a track with a drum machine or have somebody play a perfect drum beat and then come come in and play on top of it, it can be good music, but it's not conversational. Yeah, and and I, it, of course, I might be projecting here, but I think I hear not just uh-huh, but sometimes in those conversations, I'm thinking like a Beast in the Garden, I hear a, oh, yeah. been of course you have um um like you're at, you're in a coffee shop with some friends and, and you're having a, a conversation about something fascinating to everybody and and everyone starts making leaps like somebody says something and it makes you go oh i never thought about it that way well if that's true then i can do this 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 and this and it could be about anything and that's what i think that's kind of an enlightened musical experience is, is like like where the musicians are constantly pointing out how things to each other in their playing um, as they go along that that create new possibilities for the other players. And that's the art of accompaniment, too, which, by the way, I think Zakir is one of the great masters at. But so is Edgar. Um, and um, it's, it's where you, 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 you support in such a way that enables the, um, the soloist, if there's, you know, there's usually a lead soloist, even if other people are conversing with them, it, it enables them to do things they didn't know they could do or they wouldn't have thought of doing because of what's happening around them. So when you're in this conversation, I'm, I'm guessing you find differences, but also similarities that reveal themselves. Well, yeah, there has to be enough shared language for the whole thing to happen. Like if somebody starts speaking ancient Greek to you and you don't speak it, <laughs> then it's not necessarily going to encourage the kind of uh, leaps that someone speaking a language that's close enough for you to have some sense of, when you have at least some partial understanding of that's going to be more likely to 
to uh, provoke leaps. And I think also something like that is going to be more likely than someone speaking in your own language. There's something about hearing somebody with different language, at least in music, that, um, that, that stimulates new thoughts for, for me. And I know, and I think for all of us, um, because it's, it's familiar, but it's different, it's different enough that it, 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 again, it makes you re, rethink how things can work and the, and the sea of possibilities opens in front of you. And all of a sudden you're in a whole new place. And that's what we live for as musicians. Those are the, those are the good days. Well, and, and music has this advantage because I could be in a room with, you know, three wonderful people. And if I speak English and only English and someone else speaks only Hindi and someone speaks only Spanish and another person, I don't know, speaks only Sanskrit or whatever, we can't right. have the conversations that musicians can have. That's true. And musicians from different countries can have a musical conversation that's very satisfying uh, without speaking the same, um, you know, verbal language. That's right. But, you know, if, if you think of it more as if you were like um, speaking English, but you were speaking with people that had uh, uh, interests in very different fields than yours, mm -hmm. say you were speaking to a physicist and a, and a, and a cook. Right. You know, and the three of you were having this conversation. You were talking about music. They're talking about their fields. And you can understand what they're saying because you have shared language, but they're talking about things that are enlightening to you, that are, are changing your perception of the world, or at least this conversation. I think it's more like that because we do share this musical language. There's a shared musical language, and there's an unshared musical language. The stuff these guys, like for instance, Sakir and Rakesh, can do uh, that that comes from, you know, basically centuries of Indian music, sort of depositing all the information into these guys. Um, they're going to have all this information that Edgar and I aren't going to have. But Edgar's also going to have information about classical music and and, um, and his own personal music that he creates uh, that those guys aren't going to have. And I'm going to have uh, information about roots music and jazz and stuff like that, but that those guys might not have some of what, what I've got. So um, when I throw it at them, they go, oh, well, if you do that, I can do this. And if Edgar does that, they go, oh, we don't have to just stay in one mode. We could, mm -hmm. use, we could go to harmony. You know, all of a sudden, we're all sort of flexing and stretching outside of our boxes. This was recorded for the CD. You know, I have these pictures of, of musicians being in separate rooms at separate times, putting down tracks. Was that how this was, or were you more uh, able to have that real-time collaboration? It was real-time. So I, I, I call it, like, manipulated real-time because, you know, it's not like we did it once and we went, hey, we're such great musicians, that's it. And we were done. It's like we... We, we did lots of takes. We, we played over and over again. We played, played each song for several hours. So we really felt we had milked every possibility out of it. And then in a separate session, you know, when we're not in the, in the midst of our, our, our egos and our bodies um, creating this music, listen to it from a distance and go, where is the, where's the gold? And maybe it's half of take four and half of take one. And maybe, maybe the flute just absolutely blew us away on take nine. And we, then you can cut them together, but you're but you're cutting together live music that happened for real, and that's that's the art of uh, you know jazz editing. When you listen right. to the great Miles records and Coltrane, those guys would constantly go, well, you know, piano solo was amazing on take six, but 
you know the you know Coltrane solo was on was 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 on take four and you know Rudy Van Gelder would cut the tape. Well, we can do that digitally now, and, and it's very easy to do. But the trick is actually coming up with a cohesive take that really is the best. It is really better. If it isn't better, then you're just wasting your time. But um, in this case, sometimes it's very clear that something amazing happened, or maybe we really peaked at the end of take four, and then we had a great start to take five. But um, but you know, it didn't it didn't have the intensity of the end of four, and it's got to have that intensity to really land this piece. So so we're comfortable with working, you know, using the studio uh, to achieve our aims, but. But the one, uh, the one rule is we're all playing together, and we're working with the whole group. What the whole group did, we're not just uh, creating a track and adding a person one at a time. We're looking for the things that really happened, that are really special, that we think are amazing, and that we're excited about. more takes you're already set up and um, and it's amazing what can happen once you get the, the tension of the first one out of the way sometimes it takes a few before you start reaching reach new heights but what's um, exciting is so, we get to hear live then what might be you know i don't know how many tour stops or whatever but sort of take number 35 but it's ours this, this is the cool thing about about live is every show is different with this kind of music it's not like oh you know, you should have heard them last, you know, last night they played it this way. They're going to play it that, that way every night. Every night is tailored to that particular space, that particular moment in time. Um, but I also wanted to say that the process of, of actually taking your time to make a record and listening back together and, and seeing what really was good. Um, by the time you've been out on tour playing that music for a week, you're going to be playing it better than that mm-hmm. because because of that experience. But if you just continue to play shows without listening back and studying and understanding what's happening, what's working, what's not working. You don't make these leaps, but musicians like this, they keep making leaps. And that, that's, what's exciting about seeing where it gets to, um, you know, as the tour goes on, as it continues to grow, but, but with some inspection, some, some um, critical listening from the band to, to push it to the next level. And finally, you were mentioning the Coltrane and the Miles Davis albums. And I'm glad you did that because Listening to this record made me think about those records, which were albums. You listen to track one through track seven or eight, and this feels like an album that you want to put on a CD, a vinyl, whatever, and listen the whole way through. I, you know, nothing wrong with the selected tracks, but this sounds like a work that's meant to be listened to in its entirety. You know, maybe with the lights turned down a little bit. Yeah, it should put you in an emotional space. You know, we, we talk about the, the experience of being a musician trying to create this music, but when we do it right, it creates a feeling, 
And if you like that feeling, then you want to put on the record and listen to it again, which is why, why a record like my, uh, you know, Kind of Blue is such a classic, because not only is it the cutting edge music of the day, but it creates a mood and it puts you in a space and you want to hear it over and over again. And then you get to experience, you know, Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley and, and Miles and Bill Evans. And you get to really understand these very intricate, beautiful solos that they played which wouldn't really matter to you unless there was a mood and a feeling that made you want to listen again and again. So I think we all strive for that, creating a sound that at its base is fascinating and, and makes you feel good, gives you something you want to feel. And then, then all the intricacies that we put into the details of, of this and that become meaningful. Otherwise, they're, you know, it's like embroidering uh, a napkin that you're going to throw away. <laughs> What's the point? Yeah. So... That's that's what we're striving for, um, and the only one that can decide whether we got it is the audience. You know, it's up to each person to listen and make their own interpretation and see if there's a place for this kind of music in your life. Bela Fleck, thank you so much for your time. We cannot wait to see you at Walton Art Center. I predict you're going to love it. Bela Fleck speaking with me yesterday. He'll be on stage with musical colleagues Edgar Meyer, Zakir Hussein, and Rakesh Chorasia. November 4th at Walton Art Center in Fayetteville. It's part of the venue's 10 by 10 series, meaning most tickets are $10. The new album is As We Speak. It was released earlier this year. This is one more song from the record called Trade Winds Bengali. The Be Aware event is coming back to the Fayetteville Public Library this weekend. It's an allergy-aware candy distribution event that begins at 10 Saturday morning and will last until noon. KUAF will be back this year to participate once again. We'll be handing out candy, and just like last year, we'll be there to record your best monster roar or Halloween sound. The KUAF Listening Lab will be at the library so we can collect sounds like this recorded right before Halloween 2022. Happy Halloween! Be safe out there now! <laughs> As you can tell, we'll accept Halloween greetings and sounds from all ages. The Be Aware Halloween event at the Fayetteville Public Library, Saturday from 10 until noon. We will see you there. If you come at the right time, you're going to see Matthew Moore's son James in his first ever Halloween outfit. Speaking of the Fayetteville Public Library and Halloween, 
we get an early Halloween treat tomorrow night when R.L. Stein, creator of the book series Fear Street and Goosebumps, will visit with Northwest Arkansas. I'm honored to be the moderator for the event. It will begin at 6.30 in the event center. No advance tickets. It is free. First come, first serve. Capacity, a little over 600. So there you go. Books, by the way, will be available for sale and signing after the conversation, and we are going to make sure there is time during that event for questions from the audience. The Goosebump series from R.L. Stein, by the way, has sold more than 400 million copies in the United States. That's a lot of scares. And the Guinness Book of World Records lists R.L. Stein as the best-selling series author in history ever. The event, by the way, the culmination of the library's True Lit Festival. And if you're looking for other opportunities to collect Halloween vibes, the Goblin Candy Crawl will take place in downtown Rogers Halloween Day. That's Tuesday from 3.30 until 5.30. Maps directing you to participating candy stops and more can be picked up at the Rogers Historical Museum booth in the Rail Yard Park. The city of Springdale will get an early start to Halloween with Saturday's Halloween Fest. There will be candy, of course, and... Also promised, a carnival-like atmosphere. That is 3 to 6 Saturday, downtown Springdale. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, is letting the Halloween spirit take over Saturday night's concert with music from Franz Waxman's score for Bride of Frankenstein, one of my favorites, and other seasonally-themed movies and influences. Costumes are encouraged for the concert that begins at 7.30 at Walton Art Center on Dixon Street in Fayetteville. Guest conductor for the concert, Lawrence Lowe, is scheduled to visit the Carver Center for Public Radio tomorrow morning. And we plan to offer a preview of the concert on our Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. Also Friday, Becca Martin-Brown from the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette will give us more Halloween rundowns. And we'll tell you about a few more Halloween events coming up throughout the listening area on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large. Every day, you hear lots of news on Ozarks at Large. But have you ever wanted to test your listening skills? Now you can with KUAF's Word Puzzle. It's just like your other favorite daily word games that feature five-letter words and color-based hints. But you might even get a hint from the previous day's Ozarks at Large broadcast. Go to KUAF's website, or newsword.org slash KUAF to start playing Daily Puzzles now. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, Northwest Arkansas Community College has launched their second sport in their athletics department, eSports. You can be a very serious gamer and be very, very serious and focused on this, and obviously you will find great success with this team, but you could be a casual gamer. More on that tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Speaking of college, I recently spoke with Steve Drummond and Janet Wujong Lee, who worked together to run the NPR College Podcast Challenge. We'll hear that full conversation about the podcast challenge coming up soon on Ozarks at Large, but we wanted to play a small clip where Janet talks about how she loves to hear the perspective that student journalists take when they choose their subject and their sources for the challenge. It's also really empowering to hear so many students um, share stories that are deeply personal. And especially with our contest, I feel like students sometimes choose a story that they wouldn't maybe tell otherwise or really dive into something um, that's kind of their like one shot telling stories that they've always been meaning to um, hmm. figure out looking into one of our, or actually our very first winner, 
um, who is now a producer at NPR, Anya Steinberg, looked into stories um, of her family and her adoption story and something that she's always been interested in looking into, but really took this opportunity to make something and like build a full story out of it. So that's also really inspiring for us um, as journalists who do this every day to kind of like step back and hear the one kind of story that students share with us. That was Janet Wujong Lee from NPR. We'll hear more of that conversation soon on our show. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville. Contributors today included Victoria Hernandez and Daniel Carruth. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio, too. Would you like to know what rabbit hole I went down during a bout of insomnia? Oh, my gosh. One of my favorite things to do is Wikipedia rabbit holes, so uh-huh. I can't wait to hear this one. So I was trying to get back to sleep, so one of the things I do is I make lists, and I was trying to make the all-time Arkansas-born baseball team. Hmm. Got done with that. Then the all-time Arkansas-born basketball team. Sure. That, and this is counterproductive because now my brain's working, right? I'm not falling asleep. Mm -hmm. I'm actually, Mm -hmm. and I was wondering, has there ever been an NHL player, National Hockey League player, born in the state of Arkansas? There has not been. No. Which is not a surprise, right? right? Hockey's not huge here. Mm -hmm. But then I went, then Mm. my search engine guided me to someone who had listed the best hockey player born in every state, mm-hmm. whether they've gone to the NHL or not. Oh, sure. And so, uh, and it's a thorough list. And the decision was Trey Lowry, who played for the Arkansas Razorbacks club team mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago, is the best Arkansas-born hockey player. I like that. I do, too. That's great. Um, thinking of Arkansas-related sports, mm-hmm. uh, as people who know me at all know, they know that I'm a big Boston Celtics fan. They kick yep. off their season today. Or tip off. Tip off. Whichever they want to do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they tip off their season today. Uh, and Arkansas Razorback, is it an alum if you only played here for one year? Uh, Pro Hog, I think is how yeah, uh, Muscleman yeah. likes to label them. Uh, Jordan Walsh is playing for the Boston Celtics this year. I like to watch him play, too. It's like fun. I think he'll plays. get some playing time this year, too. So I'll almost be a Celtics fan for a few minutes. <laughs> for those few minutes <laughs> yes, that he's on, the, exactly. he's on the court. Hey, we're going to be back tomorrow. Matthew, thank you so much. Thank you. We will see you tomorrow. Arkansas Community Foundation supports local ARCF offices to help Arkansans learn how to make an impact through investing in long-term solutions and local giving opportunities from every corner of our state. More at ARCF.org. KUAF is supported by Groundwork, workforce housing for Northwest Arkansas. Groundwork aims to create a variety of housing options and mixed-income neighborhoods for the region's workers and their families. More information at groundworknwa.org.